The following sermon was recorded on Sunday evening, the 1st of June 1958, in the Westminster Chapel. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 5, verse 42. The opening remarks to this sermon are unfortunately missing, and we join Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones now as he is describing the scene at the Pool of Bethesda. And he knew that they were all waiting there for the time when there should be a stirring of the water. Because there was a belief that the first who got into the water when it stirred would be healed. And there was this great crowd gathered together. But our Lord fixed his attention upon one man who had been there for many years and who had been suffering from his condition for some 38 years. And our Lord looked at this man and he spoke to him and asked him the question, Wilt thou be made whole? And then the man answered, saying, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming another steppeth down before me. I'm but a poor man, he said, and these others have got their servants, and they always get there before me. He's utterly hopeless. But Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Now that was the thing that led to the trouble. The Jews, the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees and scribes and others, hearing all about this, were very annoyed. Annoyed that our Lord should have done this on a Sabbath, on a Sabbath day. They felt that thus he was breaking God's law and was a kind of blasphemer. And they proceeded more or less to tell him so. But our Lord replied and said that what he had done was nothing but the will of God and that indeed everything he did was in accordance with the will of God. And thus they understood him to be claiming that he was equal with God and one with God, to which he replies that that is the case. He, suggests, he claims that his mind is one with God's, his will is one with the will of God, and everything he does and all he says has been given to him by God. But they persist in their arguing with him, and so he is led to address them in the great sermon that is recorded in the earlier part of this chapter, where he makes it perfectly plain and clear that God has given him power to give life to men, that God has committed the judgment of this world to him. But he realizes that this has very little influence with them. Their argument was that he was just saying this himself. Very well, he says, if you don't believe me, I can produce certain witnesses, certain evidence to convince you. And so he produces his series of evidences which we've been considering together. The evidence of John the Baptist, the evidence of miracles, the evidence of God himself, the evidence of the scripture. But still, he says, I know that you don't believe me because he goes on to say in verse 40, and you will not come unto me that you might have life. You don't desire to come unto me. In other words, at this point in this chapter, we have reached the stage where our Lord has in a sense ceased to appeal to these people. 
that is now for their very soul's sake trying to get them to see the appalling condition in which they are. Here they are rejecting him and all that he has to give them. And he is now trying to show them why they do that. And as I say, he has been showing them things like this. That the trouble is really in their will. He will not come unto me. They don't desire to come. They're blind to the evidence. They're impervious to all the argument of the witnesses. And there they are in their obduracy and hardness. Unable to see who he is and to believe upon him. But now in this verse that we're looking at this evening, he carries the case yet a step further. And it is a most extraordinary statement. He now proceeds to deal with them at what is undoubtedly the most tender point of all as far as they were concerned. Because as we've been seeing throughout the chapter, these Jews, thought that they knew God and that they were the true worshippers of God. Indeed, the whole basis of their opposition to him was that they thought that he was working against God, that he was a breaker of God's commandments because he healed on the Sunday, and that he was violating God's holy law. Their case is, I say, that they are believers in God and they are people who live to please God. And yet, as our Lord keeps on pointing out to them, if they really knew God, they'd believe in him, but they don't believe in him. So now he takes these two things and he puts it like this to them. He said, the real trouble with you is this, that you haven't a love for God in you. He puts it in these words, I know. He has this knowledge. I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. Can you imagine a more striking, a more tremendous scene? Here is one whom they regarded as an upstart because he wasn't a Pharisee. He was just a carpenter who'd appeared suddenly on the scene from Nazareth. And here he is venturing to argue with them who are the doctors of the law and the religious authorities. And now he looks at them and he says, I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. Now here I say he really is pressing his case right home upon them. Because as he points out to them, he says, I am come in my father's name and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. He says, your position is utterly impossible. You claim to know God. Well, if you knew God, you'd know me and you'd believe on me. Very well, then what is the principle? Well, the principle is this. That there is nothing which is quite so fatal to the highest interests of our soul as to draw this distinction between believing in God and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point that our Lord is making. He's already made it before to them. He has already told them much earlier on. He says that whosoever honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father. 
He says, the Father judgeth no men, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. He says, you believe that you're believers in God, and yet you're proving that you're not. For if you really knew him, you'd believe in me, and you'd honor me, and you'd give yourselves to me. Very well, that's the theme I want to discuss with you this evening. Because, as we know, this is not some old position that no longer obtains. There are many people in the world tonight in the position of these Jews of old. There are many people who, if you discuss these questions with them, if you talk to them about religion, they say, oh yes, of course, I, I, I believe in God. I've always believed in God. But though they claim to believe in God, they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They see no need of him. They never talk about him. They say, ah, we believe in God. Well, you say, well, what about Jesus Christ? Well, well, yes, of course, he taught about God. He was a good man. They don't believe that the Son of God came into this world in order to bear their sins in his own body on the tree. They don't believe that unless Christ had died for them, that they're of necessity lost. No, no, he doesn't come in at all. They say they're believers in God. They don't belong to the Christian church. They don't subscribe to Christian doctrine and Christian teaching. Oh, they say we believe in God and we believe in honoring God. And they imagine that you can at one and the same time believe in God and not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not be a Christian. Now our Lord's whole point here is simply this. That that is just to harbor a complete delusion. It is impossible. His whole argument is this, that if a man really knows God, he will of necessity believe in him also. Very well then, let us consider the case of such people. People who think that you can believe in God and yet not believe the Christian faith. What is our Lord to say to such people? Let me try and divide it up like this. His first point is that the test to apply always is the test of love. I know you, he says to these people, that you have not the love of God in you. I know you, he says, that you don't love God. Now you notice how he puts it. He doesn't simply take up the question of a belief in God. No, no, he says it isn't belief that matters. It is the love of God that matters. You remember how that is put very forcibly in the epistle of James in the second chapter of the 19th verse. James is arguing and he says something like this. He says, thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Belief in God is not the important thing. The very devil, says James, believe in the being of God, but it causes them to tremble. 
They don't worship him. They don't love him. They believe in him. Indeed, a man who doesn't believe in God is a fool, as the New Old Testament puts it. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Any man who can think at all believes in God. Yes, but belief isn't the test. The test is, do we love God? Now then, why am I drawing this distinction and emphasizing it as between merely believing in God and loving God? Well, I do it for this reason. That it is the distinction that is drawn in the Bible everywhere. It is the distinction that is taught by God himself through his servants. Do you remember how our Lord himself put it? A man came to him one afternoon and said, Good master, which in your opinion is the first and the greatest commandment of the law. What is it that we are supposed to do? And you remember our Lord's reply. He didn't say, well, you must believe in God. No, no. He said this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Why do I then say that the supreme thing is the love of God? My answer is that God himself has commanded it. So there's no need to argue about this. What God calls upon us to do is not simply to believe in him. It is to love him. There are men who go to hell who believe in God. What God asks, I say, is this attitude which is described by the word love. But I think I can show you that this is something which is quite inevitable in this way. To know God at all is of necessity to love him. Because he is who and what he is. For a man really to know anything about the being of God of necessity leads to a total love of God because of his glorious nature. And therefore you see it follows that if a man says he believes in God but doesn't love God, what he really is doing is to believe in some figment of his own imagination. He has created some kind of a God, some kind of a being for himself, and then he believes in this particular creation of his own mind, the projection of his own thoughts. No man has ever truly known God, but that he's been lost in a love of God. And therefore I say the test that we must always apply to ourselves is not simply do I believe in God. As our Lord emphasizes here, it is, do I love him? And what he says, you see, about these Jews that we're confronting him at that point is this, I know you. And I know that you haven't a love of God in you. Of course you believe in God as you say. You spend your time in talking about him and in preaching about him and in teaching him to others. And here you are, you're standing up against me and saying that I'm against God and violating his law and breaking his rules. I know you. The trouble with you is you've got some intellectual conception of God, but you don't know him, and therefore you don't love him. You're legalists. And there's no real love of 
God in your natures and in your being. Oh, this is a tremendous thing, this. You see, this is one of the proofs of the deity of our Lord. I know you, he says, and he knew men. As this gospel has put it earlier, he knew what was in men. And he needed not that anybody should tell him anything about men. He sees into the depths, he knows the heart. He doesn't merely listen to the words. He has an insight into the very vitals of our being and existence. I know you. And you know, my friends, whenever we are truly in his presence, we are conscious of being searched by him. Do you feel his presence at this moment? Do you feel that he's examining you and searching you? He knows everything. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He read men as an open book and they knew that they were being read. That's why they hated him. Nothing could pass his searching scan and glance. Everything is plain before him. I know you, he says. And they knew that they were known. And therefore he turns on them and he says, though you talk so much about God and say that you believe in him, I tell you, you don't know him. For if you knew him, you'd love him. Do you love God, my friend? That's the question I'm asking. I'm not asking this evening, do you believe in God? I say again, a man who doesn't is a fool. He can't explain these flowers. He can't explain the universe. He can't explain history. He can't explain everything that happens. A man who doesn't believe in God is a fool. I'm not asking that question. The devils believe and tremble. I'm asking, do you love him? Very well, that leads me to my second great matter this evening, which is a vital one. What are the tests which we can apply to ourselves to discover whether we love God or not? This is the thing I say on which hangs our eternal destiny. What then are the tests to know, to discover, uh, whether we really love God. Now, to answer that question, we can take up the tests that we always employ in the case of human love, the love of one person for another. Love, of course, is the most wonderful thing in the world, and that's why you can't get a neat definition of love, and you can't say what love is in a sentence or in a phrase, all you can do with love, you know, is to say, well, it isn't like this, but it is like that. That's what the Apostle Paul even had to do. That's what he does in 1 Corinthians 13. Even he couldn't say what love is in a sentence. But he says, love is kind, love is not puffed up, and so on. Well, let's do that. We know, we know what love is. We know love of a human being, a human individual. And there are certain characteristics of love always. And they're as true in love for God as they are in love for another human being. Very well then. Let's apply the tests. I'm going to take them all out of the scripture. I'm not advising my own opinions here. God forbid that I should do so. I'm here to put before you what God himself has revealed concerning this very matter. Well now then, here are some of the tests. To love God at all is to love him as he is. 
to love him entirely. Have you ever heard a person in love with another person saying, Oh, yes, sir. In this respect, uh, he or she is very good, and I like that very much, but of course. There's that other thing, I hate that, I dislike that very much indeed. Does love speak like this? Does love discriminate and differentiate? No, no, love loves the whole person. Takes the person as it is, as he or she is. Is captivated by the whole personality. You may say love is blind, all right, but love does take the whole person. And love always does that. And you know, love for God does that. So that one of the quickest ways of discovering whether we love God or not is this. Do we love God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures? For he has. And what we know about God is the result of the revelation that he's given of himself. Do we take it as it is? Or is rather our position something like this? We read the Bible, or we discuss these things without even reading the Bible, as so many do, and we say, well now, of course, uh, I believe in God, because I believe that God is love. And I think that's wonderful. There's nothing more wonderful than love. And I believe in God, because God's name is love. Oh, yes, sir, says somebody, but you know, the Bible also says that God is just. Oh, you begin to say, no, I'm not so sure about that. I don't like this idea of justice that savors of law to me. The Bible says that God is merciful. Oh, yes, you see, that's wonderful, mercy. Ah, mercy is a wonderful thing. When a man sins, you say, it's all right, forget all about it. It's all right, don't take it too seriously. Don't talk about sin. Oh, look here, I just covered it over. No, don't mention that to me. What a wonderful thing mercy is. Yes, I believe in God. God is merciful. But I say the Bible also says that God is holy. And that he's of such a pure countenance that he cannot look upon sin. God is a God of grace. Ah, wonderful, you say. What is grace? Well, grace is kindness shown to the undeserving. Grace is that which gives, in spite of everything to the contrary in the recipient. Oh, you say, I believe in that God, a God of grace. But then I say to you that the Bible tells us that God is eternally righteous. That he is the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He is the God of whom I read, God who cannot lie. You say, I'm not sure about that. And then I go on to tell you that the Bible speaks about the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul preaching, uh, sending his message to the Romans says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith all. The wrath of God hath been revealed from heaven against all un ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men that hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Oh, you say, wait a minute, I can't accept that. I don't believe in this wrath. I don't like it in a man, still less in God. Well, I mustn't keep you. You see what this person is doing? He's not taking God as he is. 
He's extracting from God the things he likes. He's rejecting the things he doesn't like. My dear friend, that isn't love. Love is that which takes the person as he is, takes him in, in, in his entirety as a whole. He doesn't discriminate and choose. He's so fascinated by the blessed person that he falls at his feet and gives himself why he's been captured by the love of the other. Love doesn't thus analyze. Love doesn't thus feel hatred to certain aspects of the personality of the object of the love. Love, I say, doesn't divide like this and express its disapproval. Well, let us examine ourselves. Have you read about God in the Bible? Have you discovered that he's a righteous and a holy and a just God? A jealous God who says that he will punish sin. That because he is what he is, he cannot but punish sin. The God who gave the law to the children of Israel. Have you read about this God? And have you submitted yourself to him? Have you humbled yourself before him? Has he, as he is, captivated you? And have you submitted and surrendered yourself to him and done so happily? You see, the great characteristic of love always is this, isn't it? That love is something that dominates us. When you're in love, you're being dominated by the one you love. Your whole life is controlled by that person. And you're in none of this critical mood. And there's nothing I say about the object that you hate. No, no, love simply embraces you and you're lost. And it's equally true in love for God. When a man comes to me and says, well, you know, I believe in God, but I don't understand why God allows war. How God can allow spastic children to be born and is criticizing God for this, that, and the other. He needs say no more. I just say, that person tells me that he believes in God, but I tell him the love of God. A love for God is not in him. We betray ourselves by our speech. By saying what we say, by asking certain questions, we are just manifesting the fact that we don't love God. To love him is to love him as he is. And to fall down before him in adoration, lost in wonder, love, and praise. But come, let's look at it in a second way. The second test of whether we love God or not is this. That we love him with the whole of our being. We've got to love the whole of God. Yes, and the whole of us loves God. Had you ever thought of that? Well, I've got abundant authority for saying this. This is the statement that our Lord himself made, as I reminded you just now. He says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind and all thy soul and all thy strength. That's loving God, he says. There isn't a part of you that's left unaffected when you love. You love with the whole of your being. 
We are lost in it. Well, very well, it's equally true in our love of God. There is, I say, our Lord's tremendous definition of what a man is like who loves God. He loves him, first of all, with the whole of his heart. What does that mean? Well, we know what that means, doesn't it? When you love a person, you desire to be with that person. That life, isn't it, is to be with the other, the object of your love. You want to spend the whole of your time with him or with her. And you know when a man loves God, that's equally true. Listen to the psalmist putting it in Psalm 42. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That man loved God. Did you notice it in the 84th Psalm? My soul longeth, yea, even painteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. But it's true, isn't it? That's what you feel when you love a human being. And if we know anything about God, we desire him thus, like that heart panting after the water brooks. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Do you know anything about that, my friend? I'm not asking you whether you believe in God. You know, if you know anything about him, you'll desire him. You'll want to be with him. You'll enjoy his presence and his company. You'll be troubled if you're not near him. Oh, read your psalmist. These men who express their love for God, listen to the psalmist crying out, Why hidest thou thyself from me? Where are you, says the psalmist? I'm searching for you. Why are you hiding yourself from me? Haven't you known that on the human level? Have you known it on this other level? You see, we talk about God as if he were an abstraction, don't we? We talk about him as if he were a philosophical proposition. We talk about him as if he were something that we can put on a table in front of us. No, no, God's a person. And to love him, I say, is to desire him. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Has that ever come out of the depths of your heart and your being? Have you been seeking for him? Have you felt, oh, that I knew where I might find him? That's the language of love. What has bedeviled religion is philosophy. And it still bedevils it. You see, we're not talking about propositions, we're talking about a person. And to know the person and to enjoy fellowship and communion with the person, that's the thing. And your heart is engaged. And you love him and you long for him. And the courts of his house and the manifestation of his presence. And to feel that he's near and that you know him. And to be enfolded by his love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. I'm not going to discuss your philosophic views of God. I'm not interested in your philosophic questions. I'm simply asking you, is your heart drawn out unto him? Do you want him? Are you lovesick for him? Do you feel you're away from home when you're not with him? And then the mind. 
You see, the whole man is taken up. Ah, says someone listening to my first point only, that's it. I always thought it, your religion is sob stuff. It's some just emotionalism. You just go soft and you become psychological. No, no, with all the mind also. What does this mean? This means that your greatest delight is to contemplate the glorious attributes of God. That there is no greater pleasure that you ever have in the realm of mind and of intellect than to be reading about God in this book and to read about the glory of God and the majesty of God and the might and the dominion and the power of God and his love, yes, and his mercy and his grace and his holiness and his compassion and all the glorious attributes of the eternal God with all thy mind meditating about them. We know something about this on the human level, don't we? How we like to think of the virtues of those we love. And we think of them. And we meditate upon them. And we rejoice in them and they bring us the greatest joy in our human experience apart from these things. Multiply it all by infinity. Apply it all in the realm of God. Your mind, the everlasting God. Have you thought about him creating the world, saying, let there be light. And there was light. Have you stood in amazement as you've contemplated it? And all that we read of him in this Old Testament, his calling of Abram, turning him into a nation, leading the nation backwards and forwards, giving revelations of himself, his glory, his majesty. Do you delight in that? Do you delight to meditate about these things and to read about them and to consider them and to read books about them? That's a proof of love. The more you know about him, the more you want to know. And then the soul is involved. What's this? This is the very seat and center of personality. In other words, when we truly love God, I say we are captivated by him. We've become his slaves. It's his to command and ours to respond. Not on the surface of my life only, but God has possessed me, possessed my soul. He's dominated the whole of my life and I'm his willing slave and captain with all your soul. Yes, and with all your strength. Giving all your strength and power to please him and to serve him. Giving your time to him, giving your abilities to him, giving all that you've got by your powers and propensities to him and to his service and to his praise with all thy strength. I needn't keep you. We know so well how we do all this on the natural level. When you love a person, you don't count the money in your pocket. You give it all and wish you had more. You find time. There's always time to meet the loved one and to spend time with the loved one. Oh, how does this apply in our relationship to God? What's the value of sitting back in your comfortable armchair and smoking your pipe and arguing about God? If you know him, you'll be on your knees before him. And you'll be seeking him and desiring him 
and giving your time, your energy, your strength to him. Your life, I say, will be dominated by him. And that leads me to the next word, put it the third way, which is this, that if a man truly loves God, of course he loves to do the will of God. Look at that man who wrote the 119th Psalm. Here's a man living under the old dispensation who can't look back on Calvary and know what he wants. I know. But this is how he writes. He says, Oh, how I love thy law. I love it, says the man. And then you come over into your New Testament and you find John in his first epistle putting it like this. This is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. Love isn't some sickly sentiment. Love is strong as death. And love keeps his commandments. It acts. And says John. His commandments. Are not grievous. Oh. Here's a very subtle test. This is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And we do not find his commandments to be grievous. In other words, we read the Ten Commandments, we then go on and read the Sermon on the Mount, and instead of saying how terribly narrow, how impossibly narrow, why it just spoils life, tells me not to do everything I want to do, and commands me to live a kind of monastic life that I simply hate and detest. Oh, this Christianity, it's in so horribly narrow. Is that your reaction? Well, if it is, it just means you don't love God. For his commandments, says John, are not grievous. Oh, how I love thy law. Because it is thy law, and because it's such a wonderful law. If only the whole world loved it, they wouldn't be making these hydrogen bombs tonight. There wouldn't be these troubles in the nations. There wouldn't be trouble in family life and in the home. There'd be none of this dichotomy in a man's own personal life. If only we loved his law, the world would be paradise again. And to love God is to love his law, to love his commandments. And never to find them going against the grain and hateful and irksome. And feeling that we're making a great sacrifice when we give a little time to God. No, no. The man who loves him loves his commandment. But you know, we must go a step further and I must put that in a negative form. To love God includes that we do not love what God hates. Oh, these negatives are very subtle. They're very delicate. Listen to John again, putting it in his first epistle. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What is this love of the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. That's the love of the world. Oh, says this holy man, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen to James saying the same thing. 
Know we not, he says, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. This world, you see, is dominated by the devil. And it's a world of lust and of desire. Don't we know that this is absolutely true? The whole world is governed by lust and desire. That's why there's so much unhappiness. It's impure, it's unclean, and it's opposed to God, and God hates it all. That's what sin has done to the world and turned it into this present kind of shambles with which we are so familiar. So when a man loves God, he doesn't love the world. He hates it. He can see that all, with all its glamour and its glittering show, it's nothing, it's vile. The kingdoms of this world are passing away, and all that belongs to them. And he doesn't want to belong to that. He wants this other world, God's will. To love God, therefore, I say, is to see through the mind and outlook of the world in sin. And to hate it. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is actually the enemy of God. Do you love this world, my friend? Do you think it's wonderful? Do you talk about having a good time in it? If you do, I'm sorry to have to say it. You are an enemy of God. For this world pollutes us. It leads us to destruction. It's the death of everything that is noble and pure and uplifting within us. It's foul, it's vile. To love that, I say, is to be an enemy of God. And that brings me to my last point, which is this. How may I know that I love God? Well, this is a good test on the natural level, isn't it? It is to appreciate his gifts to us. You see, what makes the value of a gift is the one who gives it so often, isn't it? Haven't you all known what it is to be filled with joy when a little child has taken the trouble to make something to give you as a present? The thing itself, of course, is valueless. But to you it's a great treasure. And you put it amongst your most priceless possessions. Why? Well, it's the expression of the love of this little child that loves you. Oh, that's always a good test of love. We always appreciate the gifts that our loved ones give us. And if you apply that to God, it's equally true. How may I know that I love God well? It is that I look at his most priceless gift. And I receive him with open arms. What is God's greatest gift? Need I tell you? It is the gift of his only begotten Son. God so loved the world that he gave as a gift his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God has given his own greatest possession, his own only beloved son, 
who was in his bosom from all eternity. He sent him into the world. He gave him as his love gift to mankind and to the world. Here's the ultimate test of whether we love God or not. As our Lord was telling these Jews at this very point. Do you love his son? Do you feel that his son is your most priceless possession? He has given him and he gives with him this great salvation freely. God offers forgiveness of sin. Newness of life. A new nature. To take us into his family. To become his children. To give us his Holy Spirit. To deliver us from the world. To prepare us for heaven. And eventually to take us to be with himself. And enjoy with us the glories of eternity. What does all that mean to you? As you look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you look at him, especially there dying upon that cross, are you simply broken and melted? Are you overcome? Are you say, can God even do this for me? Has God so loved me as to send his son to die for me? This is everything I give myself. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What's the point of talking about believing in God? If you don't accept the greatest thing that even he can do. What's the value of talking about God philosophically and intellectually? And walking past the cross on Calvary and looking the other way. And saying I'm not interested in that blood and in that death. I'm not concerned about these things. I believe in God and I believe God's a God of love. And you despise his greatest gift. You spurn the greatest act of his own eternal love. Can't you see, my dear friend, how the thing contradicts everything that you claim to believe? Don't misunderstand what I've been saying. I'm not asking whether you love God perfectly. God knows I don't myself. We all fail, we all fall short. But what I am asking you is this. What is the general tenor of your life? What is your desire? Do you desire to know God? And to commune with him and to dwell with him? Do you love God? God is here and marvel at his perfection and feel astounded that he's ever deigned to look upon you at all. Are you down in the dust and looking up to him in wonder and in amazement that as he tells you to look at his only begotten son dying and expiring on that cross and his dead body taken down and buried in the grave and rising again. Do you say, died he for me? Then can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me that caused his pain? 
for me who him to death pursued. Amazing. And can it be that thou, my God, hast died for me? You see, the ultimate test of love is this. We are left speechless. We are left wondering. We are overwhelmed. The love of the other to us is so marvelous and so amazing that we feel that we have nothing to say. Do you love God? If you've been convicted in this service that you don't, well then I say to you, go to him, just as you are, and confess it to him. Tell him that hitherto you've read about Christ and have heard of him and he's meant nothing to you. That his death meant nothing to you. Tell him that you've seen now the shame of it all, the blindness of it all, the sin of it all. Go to him and acknowledge it and confess it. And ask him to have mercy upon him. And I assure you in his name, he sent his son to die for your sins that he might reconcile you unto himself. He will not refuse you. He will not say you nay. Go to him. Go to him immediately. Realize that nothing less than love is sufficient with such a being, with such a God. Cast yourself, prostrate yourself before him. Look up at him. And he will so manifest himself to you that you will begin to know what it means to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Amen.